Our hearts have been encouraged by that. Thank you for uh, the fellowship of other believers and uh, being able to enjoy camaraderie and union around the person of Christ and around His Word. Thank you for the opportunity to be sharpened, uh, to be equipped and trained. Uh, Might you use these sessions to help these dear brothers and sisters as they uh, grow in their skill of caring for for others in their body. And so we entrust ourselves to you. And uh, thank you for this time that we have together this morning. Guide us, give me wisdom, clarity, and um, and might we be uh, even stimulated to delight in you, even as we're thinking about theological and technical uh, questions. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so we're going to be addressing the two questions in this session, questions five and six, common grace and the noetic effect of sin. You know what common grace is? That's coffee. You know what noetic effect of sin is? When you don't get your coffee in the morning. (laughs) So I trust that some of you have enjoyed some common grace already this morning. Um, Question five. Explain the doctrine of common grace relating to the doctrine of the ability of secular psychologists to understand true information about the human condition. So uh, key words. What are you going to be wanting to define in 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 that uh, question? Common grace. What else? What do they mean by human condition? So you're going to be addressing anthropological issues and specifically talking about human condition, not just anthropology, but also hammer theology and the fact that we're all we're all in sin. Right. So everyone is um, uh, destitute and uh, incapable on their own. It does. It does relate relate to noetic effect uh, as well. It rolls over into that to some degree. Question six. So let's define some terms here. That's the question. Uh, Let's define some terms. Common grace. Common grace is the kindness of God that he shows to all people, regardless of whether they have experienced the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone. That's from Heath Lambert, page 67. Um, So common grace is non-salvific grace. Um, that doesn't always get communicated clearly, so make sure that you articulate that well in your answer. Common grace refers to God's goodness to all men universally. It is common because everyone experiences it. And, and what happens through common grace is that God orders and sustains life on earth for all men. So because of common grace, everybody has access to food. Everybody has access to sunshine. Everybody has access to rain. Everybody has access to shelter, etc., etc. And it's that means by which God sustains life for everyone. Through common grace, God also orders uh, and sustains uh, civil relationships as well. So there is a common grace. Not everybody views it this way, but there is a common grace of government. And I know, I know there's lots of ideas about government these days, uh, which seem to accelerate in 2020 and, and COVID and all that. But, but government is a grace of God to all men to order and structure and provide laws and implementation of laws and discipline of lawbreakers. And even in the most perverse kinds of countries, there's still a, a, a measure of civil structure and order because of governments. That's God's common grace to all people. Through common grace, not all sinners are as bad as they could be. That's God's restraining influence on their lives 
uh, through the Spirit of God and through the church, etc. So those are all non-salvific things. You don't need to be a believer in Jesus Christ to experience those things, and that's common grace. You want to make sure to distinguish common grace from general revelation. Sometimes people will cross over and confuse those two. Um, Common grace is a provision from God of gifts. God gives good things to everyone, regardless of their spiritual condition. General revelation is God's provision of knowledge to all men. So, both in common grace and general revelation, everybody receives it, but they receive different things. Uh, in common grace, they receive gifts, and in general revelation, they receive knowledge. Um, what is important to understand as well is that common grace is a general gift, while, um, while uh, general revelation is... Um, something that holds people accountable. It has authority, uh, which is different from common grace as well. Let's think about also the human condition, anthropology. Uh, What we understand about man is that man is created in the image of God to represent him in the world through our reasoning, our morality, our relationships with him and with one another and in our dominion over creation. But... Sin and the resulting depravity of man destroy that image. Again, that's from Heath Lambert. Um, so people are made in the image of God. That's an important uh, important fact to understand. Um, that's what it means to be human. To be human is to be made in the image of God. So look around the room. Uh, if you go to the grocery store after after the session today, um, or if you're on the road and you're passing other drivers, every person you see is an image bearer of God. Now, some bear greater uh, reflection of God than others, but all of them are created to be image bearers and are image bearers of God. But because of depravity, and by depravity, we mean that everybody is as fully sinful as they can be, Right? I see yes, and I see no. What do I mean? Depravity, what do I mean? Everybody is as fully sinful as they could be. No. Right. And that's wrong. <laughs> they, they, they could be more sinful. Everybody could be more sinful. By depravity, we don't mean that everybody is fully sinful in every aspect. I mean, there, there is a sense in which that's true because nothing they do is to the glory of God. But everyone can sin more overtly than they do. What we mean by depravity is man is utterly incapable of pleasing God. Like total depravity. Yes. He's, he's okay. entirely incapable of pleasing God. Okay. And every aspect of his being is stained by sin. So he may not be as vile as he could be, but every part of him is touched by sin, tainted by sin, corrupted by sin. Corrupted is probably the best word of those. And because of that, that's going to, where that weighs in on this is psychologists who don't have Christ, everything they think is stained by sin. Now, some things they can talk about and they go, well, that makes sense. That that aligns with biblical truth. But we'll see this in a little a little bit later. The further they go towards God, the further away they go from Him. 
truthfully, right? Because they, they, their minds are depraved and they're operating out of the flesh and not out of the spirit. So that's going to be critical um, as you think about how can the world system and psychologists and psychiatrists help us. Um, Packer says this, total depravity signifies a corruption of our moral and spiritual nature that is total, not in degree, for no one is as bad as he or she might be, but in extent. It declares that no part of us is untouched by sin and therefore no action of ours is as good as it should be. And consequently, nothing, nothing in us or about us ever appears meritorious in God's eyes. We cannot earn God's favor no matter what we do. Unless grace saves us, we are lost. Total depravity entails total inability. That is the state of not having it in oneself to respond to God and his word in a sincere and wholehearted way. That, if you don't have that book, that's a really helpful book, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not in the bookstore here, but you can find it easily. Um, it's a little paperback, about 150 or 200 pages, and it's just like one- and two-page definitions of all kinds of key theological terms. And it's, it's typical Packer, so it's clear, it's concise, um, it's profound, it's very readable, uh, Packer Concise Theology. So let's think about some passages that are clear. And we're not, I think I've given you a whole list of all kinds of passages, so we're not going to run through all those. We don't have time, but let me highlight a few of them. Um, John 1, 14 and 15, God, uh, God has revealed his grace to all men in Christ. There's an overlap there in co- between common grace and general revelation, so be careful about how you use that one. Um, but but there is a revelation of God's graciousness in the person of Jesus Christ um, in John chapter one, Matthew five forty five. This is a key verse. <clears throat> um, he says in verse forty four, uh, this is Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaching. I say to you, verse forty four, Matthew five. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that verse forty five, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the believer is to be loving towards others, even his enemies, as a reflection of God's love for those who are opposed to him. And how does God demonstrate his love for those who are opposed to him? Well, he, whether they are good or evil, he gives them sunshine and he gives them rain. That's common grace. So all men receive sun and rain, whether they are good or not. That's, a, that's one of your key passages. Acts 14:17. Uh, God supplies the temporal needs of food and water and shelter, and he does so worldwide. Acts 17. Um, excuse me, Acts 14. Is that right? Yes. He did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and he gave you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So God is the one that gives the rain. God is the one who gives the crops. God is the one who makes the crops to grow. And ultimately, anything you have on your table, it's a gift of God's grace to you, especially coffee at eight in the morning. (laughs) You smell the theme? Um, so God is the one who gives all those things. Exodus 31, uh, verses 2 to 11. We won't read that entire section, but 
in that section, what you find is that God facilitates and allows the development of all created works of mankind in philosophy, the arts, and science, and technology. Um, so all of those things are God's gifts to you. So when I was working on, on my notes yesterday and just reviewing them, I had playing in the background um, uh, a whole series, a, a long playlist from Beethoven. And just listening to, this is what a blind man produces. Um, and, I, and, I, and later in the morning, I pulled up a, a Chopin Polonaise in A-flat played by Van Cliburn. And you just listen to that and you go, it's astounding the depth and the breadth and the, the ability of the, of the pianist to play that kind of music in that way. Or you go to worship tomorrow morning and you, you sing a song written by Boswell and Papa and you go, that's, that's amazing, the, the combination of words that bring glory to God and reflect the truth of Scripture. That's all God's common grace. And whether it's music or the car that you get into and the technology and... You know, the phone syncing with the car, and it's like, how does that happen? I don't know. It's magic, right? No, it's technology. It's a common grace of God's gift to us. And you go to the medical doctor on Tuesday afternoon, it's, that's common grace. And God gives us all of these things. We're sitting in air conditioning today. That's common grace. And you have a table and a pen and paper. And um, we have printers now. We have, we have copiers that copy in color, right? So it, that's common grace. So everything that we have, it's just God's, God's astounding gifting to us so that we can do these things. That's his common grace. Um, you, don't have to be, you don't have to be a believer to be uh, a, a nuclear engineer or, or anything else. Absolutely, yeah, it's just this, it's amazing. Um, and, and you think about all of, all of the things that people can do. Um, I mean, I'm grateful for it. I am, I am up an ambulatory because I've got, a, I've got a battery in my chest that's providing 75% of my heartbeats. And that's God's common grace. And it's got a 10-year battery on it, right? So um, I've got five more years before I need to replace it. But um, that's, that's common grace. It's just God's amazing kindness to us. Uh, Romans 13, 3 and 4, God maintains social and political order. Second uh, Thessalonians two six and seven the spirit of God restrains the power of sin so the restraining influence of the spirit of God in the world I think fundamentally through church and believers um, is a restraining influence on the world so that the world isn't as evil as it could be uh, Romans two fourteen and fifteen that's a really key passage God provides all men with a conscience to know what is moral and immoral that's another one of those restraining influences of sin that people have consciences that tell them that's wrong and so you go to other parts of the world and 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 you find laws on the books that are pretty standard and pretty typical everybody understands these things are are wrong and unrighteous and we need to outlaw them and punish people who do those things and that's those kinds of things there's there's a standard of of those kinds of things that's widely accepted. Where does that come from? The common grace of conscience. Uh, God withholds judgment, Genesis 8, 21, 22. Um, uh, God withholds a judgment that is earned and merited. So God, God says, I'm going to be patient. Um, we see that as well, Romans chapter 2. Uh, verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So God can look at a sinner and immediately, as soon as a sinner sins, he could say, that's it, you're done. And he could take them out. In, in common grace, 
He doesn't do that. He allows people um, opportunity to hear the truth and um, and repent before he um, before he takes them out. Uh, Lambert divides common grace into three categories. Um, I can't remember if that's yeah that's not in there. In there. Uh, he divides uh, common grace into three categories. Is that in your notes? Um, he talks about divine moral provision, divine physical provision, and divine intellectual provision. So you can look at all of those things we've just talked about. You can put it in one of those three categories. God's moral provision, God's physical provision, and God's intellectual provision. And those are, those are helpful categories to have. So what is the relationship then between common grace and secular psychology? Because of common grace, unbelieving psychologists can contribute information and observation about the human condition. So they can look at what people do and make good observations about that. They can observe behavior and actions and patterns and they can do research and they can uh, conduct all kinds of information, produce all kinds of information that is going to be helpful to biblical counselors. Frankly, they have more time and more money at their disposal than we do and they can help us with all that, all, all that stuff. So, so getting research to say what do people who exhibit obsessive-compulsive behavior, what kinds of things do they do? And they can help us with those categories. Um, what do people who are anxious do? What do people who are angry do? Uh, what do people who have been traumatized in a war situation, what kinds of behavior do they do? Where, where do they have tendencies? They're extremely helpful in those kinds of areas. However... Because they only possess common grace, they cannot truthfully evaluate why. And they cannot um, truthfully evaluate how to help people change and grow. They do not have genuine solutions to the problems that they are observing. So I think the world often sees rightly about things that are going wrongly they just don't have a clue about how to categorize it correctly and then how to think about what a solution for that might be. And that's where most of us feel really frustrated, either as counselors or just church members. We just say, the world has gone off its axis, right? So children are asking questions about gender. Well, this is not the first generation that's asked those questions. But in previous generations, we had parents who were able to say, no, son, you're a boy, and boys do this, they don't do that. Oh, okay. But now we're saying, oh, there's something wrong. He has a question. That's appropriate, right? What am I? Who am I? And how does being, what does being a male look like in this world? And now we're saying, oh, he must not be a boy, he must be a girl. So they've rightly evaluated there's a question They've just come up with the wrong solution. And that's where we're saying the world's gone off its axis. That's why. So they have common grace to observe some things, but they don't have particular grace to come up with the right answer. So Adams has said that psychology can be a useful adjunct in two ways. One, for the purposes of illustrating and filling in generalizations with specifics. So we can look at people and say, well, that's generally how they work, but they can help us actually find more particular ways in which they act and function. 
And then secondly, in challenging wrong human interpretations of Scripture, they force the student to restudy the Scripture. So they're, they're doing us a, a favor when they came up with all these wrong solutions to make us dig deeper and say, okay, what does the Bible really say about this and how can we genuinely help people? And I think you're seeing a lot of growth in that area because there's so many things that are going wrong right now. Uh, I think you're seeing the biblical counseling movement respond in some really helpful ways. Through common grace, unbelieving psychologists can encourage and provoke biblical counselors to greater faithfulness in ministering the scriptures. That's from Heath Lambert, uh, page 79. <clears throat> he also, uh, we also might add this. Without particular saving grace... Unbelieving psychologists cannot offer eternal hope and lasting change for their observations on the nature of mankind. Um, So, for instance, a Marxist will look at the world system and say the problem in the world is because of an unjust distribution of wealth and we just need to redistribute the wealth and that's the answer. Um, Or moralists and educators and politicians tend to believe that the problems in the world are because of ignorance and lack of education. So if we just educate uh, a high schooler about the dangers of drug use or unprotected sex, they won't use drugs or engage in sexual activity prior to marriage, and, and, and we can fix the problem that way. Uh, a number of years ago, Ellie Wiesel was at an event in Dallas, and he said this, quote, I believe that if there is anything that could disarm fanaticism, it's learning. It's education. Whatever the essential answer to urgent and Uh, dangerous problems is surely education is a major component without it nothing is possible without it there is no culture no civilization no compassion no humanity so all we got to do is educate people and that'll fix it Um, has anybody looked at the education system lately and seen what a mess it is and I'm not talking about public school here primarily. I'm thinking about upper education, right? So the university system and how it's populated with people that are just driving all this wrong thinking. Um, psychologists and psychiatrists often believe that the problems in the world are the result of organic issues. And that's, that's been the case for a long time. But it is, it is being ramped up tremendously right now. So you think hearing a lot now about trauma and trauma therapy. Um, there's a... a uh, a, a very significant book in the secular world, Vandervoek, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, and there's a biblical, I use that term very loosely, parallel to that as well. Um, the title escapes me at the moment, but they're, they're essentially saying everything that people do, everything people do that is wrong and harmful is, is stored within the body. It's a body response. So anxiety is a body issue, not a mind and heart issue. Um, and the one guy gives the example, for instance, you know, if so if somebody gets mugged on a particular street, um, so somebody beats him up, hits him in the head, steals his wallet, then he walks down the street a day later uh, and or a week later and sees someone who looks similar to the mugger that attacked him walking towards him, he's going to be anxious and that's a body response. No, it's not. He's making an observation, he's thinking, he's evaluating, and now he's responding. And I'm not saying it's wrong necessarily to make sure he's safe. That's not the issue. But it's not a body response, it's a mind and heart response that has impact in what the body does, but it starts in the mind, not in the body. And is that going to weight how you treat those people? 
Absolutely. The person who says it's a, it, it's, it's a body issue, the body's keeping the score. The body is tallying up everything that happens to it and it's responding to it. That's going to, that's going to result in one means of treatment over here. But in the Bible, in the Bible side, we're going to say, wait a minute. This is mind and heart. And yes, you're responding bodily, but this is a mind and heart issue. And that's where we need to start. And we need to start with the gospel Christ word and see what we can do to change your mind and heart and the way you're processing and thinking about those things. It's vastly different. And this whole, um, uh, this is growing, I would say, exponentially now. And um, it makes that person a victim. It does, absolutely. It, it, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's really as pervasive as the AA phenomenon, yeah. right? Like it's going great already, already mm-hmm. in the thought process of healing people. It is. It, you can't get around it. You know, I mean, when I was in seminary, I mean, the word homosexual existed, but uh, honestly, it was like it was this thing that was out there. Transgenderism was not a word. It was not something we ever talked about. It was not an issue. And and within five to ten years. Um, there was this massive cultural shift, and you're seeing the same thing on this issue. It's just changing dramatically quickly. Um, unfortunately, there there are answers uh, to these kinds of things, and starts in the scriptures. We've got the book; we know where the answers are, right? So Romans three: um, Are they better than we? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands, none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. And we're going to go to those people and get help? Seriously. No, we've got the Word of God. We've we've got the means to help people. Um, Douglas Moo, one of my favorite commentators on Romans, writes this about that passage. He says, They are imprisoned under sin, unable to liberate them, free themselves by anything they can do. Knowing this, then, God has sent to us not a teacher or a politician, but a liberator, one who has the power to set us free from our sins. When we really see the people all around us, at work, in our neighborhoods, at the store, as helpless captives of sin, we will be better motivated to help them find the true liberator who alone can rescue them from their captivity. Only Jesus Christ, proclaimed in the gospel, can break through the walls of sin that imprison human beings. Um, and again, we've got the book, we've got the gospel, we've got the spirit, and and. That's the problem with common grace and psychologists. They have things that they can observe. They have means to help us understand what's going on in particular people's problems, but they have absolutely no solutions. Glenn, I think you had a question. Yeah. Yeah, Christ. (laughs) Yeah, because you've been liberated and so have I, right? And we were just as trapped. We were just as lost. And there is a sense in which we need to look at these people and in, in two ways. Some of them are intentionally deceiving and leading people astray. Um, and we need to not be afraid to say that's what's going on. But, but for the vast majority of them, even these people that are writing these things, they're trapped. They don't know any better. And we need to have pity on them in the sense that they need the gospel, right? The compassion of Christ says... These people are only doing what they can do out of the flesh. They've got no other tool to do anything differently. Uh, so what do we expect? What do we expect them to do? I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. You write that down. That's helpful. 
Yeah. Yeah, so in common grace, they see there are genuine problems. And in common grace, they God's put it in their hearts to help them. They just don't have the tool because they don't have the Spirit of God to help them. Yeah, that's really helpful. Oh, man, look at that. I'm halfway through and halfway through my time. Um, questions? Any other comments? I think that the, the media is your friend and your enemy at the same time. Yeah, it, it's our enemy. It's our enemy. <clears throat> since since 2020, I've said it more and more and more. I, I almost feel uh, I almost feel like it's on auto repeat with me. Turn off the TV. Turn off your notifications. Stop going to Wall Street Journal or Fox News or CNN or wherever you like to go for news. It's not doing your heart any good, and you don't need to know it. Um, what you need to know is here. Um, and and I just find so many people just trapped and ensnared uh, by that, and 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 we don't we don't need those things. Now, if there's an Aggie football game, it's okay to watch that. But I, I, I work at Tarrant County College. Yeah. And, uh, I have two transgender colleagues. Yep. And I was praying for one of them, and and you know, Lord, just the Lord gave me complete compassion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, th- these people are just desperately ensnared. They're looking for... Uh, um, G.K. Chesterton said, the man who knocks on the door of the brothel knocks for God. And that's... You can say that about any sin. And the one who pursues transgenderism goes to the doctor to find a, a sexual change operation or therapy... Um, He's looking for God. He's just looking in the wrong place. And and that's a person that's ensnared uh, by the depravity of his sin. Which is a good transition to question six. Explain the doctrine of the noetic effect of sin relating the doctrine to the ability of secular psychologists to understand the true information about the human condition. Obviously, there's overlap between question five and this question. <clears throat> the key thing we're going to need to define, you're going to talk, need to talk about, is the noetic effect of sin. When we're talking about the noetic effect of sin, and I will say, um, if you open most theologies, it will be hard to find a section on noetic effect of sin. Many theologies just don't even address it. MacArthur does in Bible Doctrine, and I, I'm pretty sure Grudem does in his as well. So there are sections there, but it is pretty rare. There's actually an article, anybody know the Cripplegate, the blog site? The master Semin- it's mainly populated by master seminary graduates. The Cripplegate is a dot org, I think dot org or dot com. I can't ever remember, but just the Cripplegate. Um, a guy by the name of Lyndon Unger wrote an article on the noetic effect of sin, and it's stellar. Uh, I think it's in your notes. Uh, the link there. Um, he says this because of the no- because of the sin nature, man's mind is incapable of seeing the facts of reality rightly in relation to God. Whoops, sorry. Um, So when we're talking about noetic, we're not talking about noaic. That's a guy, Noah. Noetic is taken from the Greek word noeo, which is to think. Um, And so... When we're think, when we're talking about the noetic effect of sin, we're talking about the effect of sin on the mind, and how sin changes the way people think. Put 
simply they don't think rightly, don't think correctly. Abraham Kuyper noted 12 effects of sin on the mind, a great Dutch theologian from a century plus ago. Um, So one of the noetic effects of sin on the mind is falsehood and unintentional mistakes. So we misspeak, which is something that I do with uh, some frequency, right? So unintentional mistakes, self-delusion, self-deception, the intrusion of fantasy into the imagination. So creating worlds, creating things that aren't genuine and are disassociated from the truth. And I'm not talking about creative imagination like Tolkien, that kind of thing. We're talking about imagining scenarios in real life that aren't true, right? So it's it's conjured up in our fantasies. Yeah, it could be it could be any number of reasons, right? But yes, escape would be one. Uh, unintentional negative influences of other minds, for instance, in education upon the mind. Uh, intentional negative uh, 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 physical weaknesses uh, influencing the total human psychology, um, and and simply we mean by that uh, physical illness will tempt us to think in unrighteous ways. Right. So um, someone introduced me a couple of years ago to a term I'd never been privy to. I think it's because people were trying to spare me embarrassment. But there's this thing called a man cold. You're familiar with that? OK, so some of the women are. So, guys, just be aware that women often think about us and they say, oh, he's got a man cold. And you know what a man cold is? A man cold is something. It's just a normal cold that anybody could function under, except it puts a man in bed for a week. Right? It's like, oh, I'm dying here. No, you just got a cold. Get up and get with it. Get over it. Right? So that's a man cold. So an illness will provoke us to think in unrighteous ways. Uh, a little more seriously, if you've ever been sleep deprived, and I don't mean like, uh, you know, it's not up to snuff today. I, you know, got about an hour short last night, and some of you may be in that category today. No, I'm talking like sleep deprivation, where you have you have seriously gotten a significant lack of sleep, like you've been up for 36 or 48 hours continuously. And if you've never experienced that, it is astounding how you will be tempted in ways that you never thought you would be tempted. Um, I've gone through that once in a very dramatic way, and it was, it was, I'll, I'll use the word horrific, what it exposed that was in my heart. Um, and physical, physical conditions will tempt us and expose what's wrong with our minds in that moment. Um, it will um, it will produce disorganized relationships of life. There's the effect of misinformation and inaccuracies learned from one realm of life upon ideas from another domain. We see that in all kinds of areas right now. Self-interest, the weakening of mental energies and the darkening of consciousness, the internal disorganization of life harmonies, the loss of understanding of one's place in the world found only in the revealed knowledge of God by which one may see the whole. That, that's the key, right? So we have misunderstood our position, our relationship to God. We're thinking incorrectly about our relationship to God and man. Uh, John MacArthur 
in Bible doctrine? Yeah, just education in general, yeah. Um, Some key passages. Let's look at Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the image there is um, something like a a beach ball, right? A beach ball relating to the truth. And they take this beach ball of truth and they try and push it down into into a swimming pool and hold it underwater. And and there's a measure in which you can do that for a season, but that beach ball is going to come popping up to the surface. You cannot suppress the truth. They can attempt it, so they're suppressing it. They're pushing it down. They're, they're trying to get it under the water. Or a different analogy, they're trying to take some, they're trying to take a cat, put it in a box and seal the box. And there's a season in which you can do that with a cat, but that cat's coming out. And the truth is going to come out. You can't fully suppress it. It will be revealed. But in their ungodly thinking, they're saying, I can hold this down and I can be preeminent. My idea can be a priority. Why do they do that? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. They know. An atheist knows. He's had it revealed. Now, he's denying it and denying it and denying it and denying it and denying it. And perhaps at some point he gets to the point where his conscience is hardened and he really does believe it. But he knows. In common grace, it's been revealed to him. In his conscience, it's been revealed to him. And Paul says it really clear. God has made it evident to them. So they're suppressing, they're pushing down this truth because their mind doesn't work right, because they're trying to be preeminent and they don't want God to be preeminent. Verse 20, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. That's general revelation, right? They, they look at the world and they, they, it can only be defined or explained by God. Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So they see it, they know it, they understand it. And God says that they are without excuse. He's going to hold them accountable for that. Um, they have no excuse for the rejection of Faith in Christ, they are choosing it willfully because of the degradation of their minds. And that especially comes out, verses 21-22, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him. That word is not just honor, it's the word glorify. uh, I think it's the word glorify. They didn't glorify Him as God. So then we either eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. That's the test. You glorify God and they fail the test. No, we didn't give God glory. Who did they give glory to themselves? Right. Um, So um, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened and professing to be wise. They became fools. So we have three words there that relate to the failure of the mind. Right. Um, They became futile 
in their speculation. So the way they're thinking about the world, what they're speculating about the world and how the world operates was futility. Their foolish heart, what's heart? That's inner man, right? Uh, That's conscience, that's will, that's emotion, that's desire, uh, that's thinking, that's processing. That's all the inner man stuff. It was darkened. So it's in blackness. They can't see the light of day, we might say. And professing to be wise, they became fools. So, so they're, um, they're futile, they're dark, and they're fools. That's all, that's all inner man, mind, heart communication. Um, so the entirety of their lives is futility, and they are condemned because of it. So their mind because they're not in Christ, doesn't work right. Now, just a side note, and I'll, I'll bring this up before, uh, later as well. Make sure to make a distinction between brain and mind. They're not the same. Brain is physical, mind is spiritual. So I can have something, I can have a tumor in my brain. That's physical, that's not spiritual. And that tumor in my brain is going to do certain things. Certain connections aren't going to be made, right? And so there's going to be bodily response to that because of the tumor. That's physiological. But mind is something entirely different from that. So when we're talking about the mind not working, we're talking about the inner man, the spiritual heart, our desires, our will, our conscience. Those are influenced by bodily realities, but they are not dependent on bodily realities. So I can have cancer and be a grouch, and I can have cancer and be rejoicing in Christ. So my response in the inner man is not dependent on my physical condition. So make sure to make really clear the difference between brain and mind. What's broken in the unbeliever is not the brain. The mind is broken. The inner man is broken. The heart is broken. And because the heart is broken, now they're using the brain in inappropriate ways, right? So they're pursuing things intellectually that can't solve their problems. But the problem is not a brain problem. When we're talking about the noetic effect of sin, we're not saying their brains are broken. We're saying their hearts are broken. Their minds are broken. Uh, so make sure to make that distinction. Romans chapter 3, you know this, we've already alluded to a little bit. Um, the reason they don't think correctly, <clears throat> uh, the wrong reason they don't think correctly is that they've embraced and desired their sin more than anything else. MacArthur says this, Men are not sinful and hardened against God because they are ignorant of Him, but to the contrary, They are ignorant of him because of their sinful and hardened disposition. And we'll see this in Ephesians chapter 4 in just a moment. Um, So it's not, it's not that, um, it's not that they're ignorant and then they become hard. They are hard and out of that hardness, they demonstrate their sinfulness and their ignorance of him. Um, Yes, that's right. Um, Because of this, we cannot expect immoral, spiritually uncomprehending people to make moral choices and lead us righteously, whether that leadership is in the family, school, business, political realm, no matter how smart they are, 
It's not a matter of intellect. It's a matter of heart and spiritual character. People in this condition without Christ are utterly incapable of thinking and knowing the ultimate truth. Now, the joy for the believer is we were all in that condition, right? And in salvation, he pulled us out of that, gave us a new heart and a new mind. And now we can think rightly and process rightly and evaluate the world rightly in relationship to God. Romans chapter 8, their minds are set on the flesh. Their minds are set on sin. And because of that, that's what they produce. Uh, Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk as Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them, because of their hardness of heart. So notice the progression of ideas here. So they are idolatrous. That's verse 17. Um, They are Gentiles. They are against the Lord. They're walking in that way against the Lord in the futility of their minds. Their fundamental worldview is against God. Um, That word futile in verse 17 is a word that refers to things that are empty, transitory, purposeless. The way the Gentile thinks is empty and void of any meaning. Why? Because he's removed God out of the equation. He won't think of anything in terms of God. Um, Now you can nuance it a bunch of different ways, but essentially there are only two worldviews. One worldview that accepts and follows the God of Scripture and the Bible, and the other worldview that denies Christ, God, and the Gospel. And everybody's going to be in one of those two categories. And when you fall into the category of against God, you fall into this category, verse 17, of futility. Their worldview is life without God by any means in any form. And it gets worse than that. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. That word understanding refers to reasoning processes. So their ability to reason an argument rightly their emotions and their ability to engage in conversation about those things is corrupted. It doesn't mean they don't understand anything, but it does mean that they don't have an ability to reason biblically and theologically. They cannot comprehend the truth about God and Christ. They have no ability to know or do righteousness. They are slaves to sin. They're slaves to unrighteousness. So they just have no capacity to see the world the way God sees the world. Now think about um, think about the illustration of the blind man who's healed in John chapter 9, and at the end of that passage, he's liberated from blindness, right? And the Pharisees say um, something about his blindness, and Jesus turns it back on them and says, seeing, you're still blind. So that, that's what's going on here. They're just blind. They're, they're dark. They don't understand. Um <clears throat> To live in darkness is to live in life in a way that you have an incapable mind and an incapable heart. And again, be careful to distinguish between brain and mind. 
So when we're saying this, we're not saying their brain doesn't function. Some of these are highly intelligent people. But their their hearts are zero on um, an, on, a, on a, a spiritual quotient instead of an intelligence quotient. Um, note this as well. He says they are darkened in their understanding. It is impossible to be partially dark. If one lives in any part of darkness, then he lives in full darkness and the darkness is overwhelming. It's not kind of like, well, it's kind of dusky out there and I can kind of make it out. No, no, no. You're either in the light or in the dark. You either see clearly or you're totally enslaved to blindness. Um, Verse 18, the ignorance is willful. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them. There's all kinds of ignorance, right? There's ignorance that's a lack of information. It just simply means we haven't been taught something. So you look at a two-year-old, and there's lots of things that a two-year-old is ignorant about in the world. But that's not not an indictment of the character of the two-year-old. It just hasn't been trained. Um, But over years with appropriate uh, intellectual development, that child will be trained and the child will get to know things, right? So we're, there, there's that kind of ignorance. It's just we just don't know. Sometimes it's a lack of understanding, a lack of comprehension. Sometimes it's a bad memory. I'm starting to fall more and more into that category. It's something that I used to know, but now I don't know anymore. Um, and some of you are familiar with that. Other times it is intentionally pushing it out of our minds. We ignore the reality of the truth. And note the relationship between the words ignore and ignorance. And that is exactly what Paul has in mind. It is not an ignorance that is accidental. It is an intentional ignorance. I don't know because I don't want to know. That's Romans 1.18, right? I'm suppressing the truth. It's not that they aren't aware. They are aware and they don't want it. They've rejected it. They've said it's not, it's not appropriate uh, for them. And notice that he says... Because of the ignorance that is in them. That is, it is in them because of an internal desire, not an external action. They are ignorant of God because of the desire and choice to be ignorant. They have access to the truth of God, right? General revelation, and most people even have access to special revelation. They just don't want it. I don't want to hear what God has to say about me. And that means, friends, they're culpable. This is not accidental. It's not something that has happened to them. They're not a victim. It's been their choice. And this is the case of every every unbeliever. And then finally, their hearts are hard. <clears throat> the word hardness is a medical term that refers to callousness. There's a dullness and an insensitivity to touch and feel because of hardened sin, uh, because of hardened skin. In this case, not hardened skin, but hardened sin. These unbelievers, we would say, they're petrified, they're calloused, they're impenetrable. And when that happens, there is virtually no responsiveness to the Holy Spirit and Scripture. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about that same principle and he says they've cauterized themselves to the truth. So they've taken something hot and they've cut off the flow of blood to a particular part of the body. And in this case, they've cut off the flow of the Spirit of God and the word of God to their hearts. Um, how does that happen? How do you become hard? 
It is by saying no to God constantly. And you say no to God frequently enough and you become callous to God. You become uncaring about God and you don't you don't repent ultimately because you can't repent. And that's a danger. Sometimes you will have people in the counseling room who say things like, I know this is wrong, but I will repent someday. And you'll hear that or some variation of it. And God will forgive me. Is that true? Yes, if we repent, He forgives. That's not the question. The question is, if I persist in willful sin, will I want to repent on the other side of it? Because the very act of engaging in that willful sin is hardening my heart to going back to repentance. So yes, God will forgive, but that's not the issue. The issue is, will I even want to repent? And the, and, and the willful disobedience is callousing my heart. And that's, it's an act of the unbeliever. Glenn? Yeah, well, that, yeah, sure. Is it a genuine repentance or is it just wipe the slate clean? Um, he's talking here in 17 to 19. This is an unbeliever. Yes, mine, mine too. But he says, notice the first thing he says, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk. You no longer conduct your life in this way. In other words, there's a temptation for a believer to say, I don't need to change that. I can keep walking this way. I can keep doing that. It's okay. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Because if you go that direction, understand what that is. It is futility. It is darkness. It is excluded from the life of God. It's ignorance. It's hardness. So don't go that way. There's a temptation the flesh is going to pull you. I'm assuming your flesh will. I mean, my flesh pulls me that way, right? And he's saying, don't do that. That's folly. That's not liberty. That's, that, that's bondage. Liberty's over here. And light is over here. Um, and the believer, the believer can persist over there. That's why we have biblical counselors to pull people out, right? Um, so the believer can wander that way. And if you persist in that over time, we would probably say he probably never was. He was giving evidence of fruit, but it was not true fruit. And we all know people that fit those categories. Um, so when you're counseling folks, understand that the noetic effect of sin, that's because we're fallen. Even now, we still struggle, right? Our there's still, while God has liberated us and we're new creatures in Christ, the mind and heart don't always work the way they should. Um, they will one day. Um, a couple other passages, Colossians 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you're familiar with this. But let me just draw out a couple of things. Without the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is central. Because without the Spirit of God, the unbeliever cannot know the thoughts of God. The unbeliever is bound by the spirit of the world. The unbeliever does not accept the things of the spirit. And the unbeliever cannot understand the things of the spirit. Right? So he rejects everything about God. Uh, verse 11. Uh, Who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of the man which is within him? 
Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So only you know what's rolling around in your head. That's your spirit. That's your inner man. So you know what's in your head. I know what's in my head. Nobody else knows what's in my head. Even my wife doesn't know. She has a good idea because we've lived together for a long time. But she doesn't know. So it's the Spirit of man that knows. And similarly, the Spirit of God knows what's in the heart of God because He's within God, right? He is God. Um, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world... But the Spirit who is from God. So God gives us the Spirit as a gift so that we may know the things which are freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. They are spiritually appraised. That's the noetic effect of sin. He's rejected it. He doesn't want it. He doesn't. He is not drawn to it, and he um, he rejects it because he does not have the spirit. Okay, relationship of the noetic effect of sin to secular psychologists. Um, common grace makes it possible for unbelievers to know facts, but the noetic effects of sin make it impossible for them to embrace the most important facts. The closer unbelievers get in counseling to issues having to do with God, the ultimate meaning of life, and the problems that plague humanity, the greater the impact of the noetic effect of sin on their thinking, and the more cautious Christians must be in accepting the information they produce. Have I given you a chart there in your notes? I haven't. Okay, so um, here's this chart. This came from uh, the book Scripture and Counseling. So when you start down here at the bottom, unbelievers can really help us in these areas, right? So non-physical uh, non-living physical creation. So things like phys- uh, physics and astronomy and inorganic chemistry and geology. Unbelievers, you can trust what they're going to come up with there. That's helpful. They build our bridges and praise God for those guys that do those things. We're thankful for those kinds of things. But there's a little bit of skewing when we start thinking about um, organic matter. So things like plants and then further up the chain Uh, animals, and then humanity and God. So the closer we get to God, the interpretive distortion increases uh, without a biblical worldview. So the further you move away from inorganic and move towards organic to move to man, to move to inner man, to move to understanding of God, the greater the sense of corruption there will be because of the noetic effect of sin. So the key component of salvation is the redemption of the mind, right? So the unbelievers made a new creature and the, the psychologist, secular psychologist, the secular um, psychiatrist don't have that within them. And that's why we don't, that's why we don't trust them. That's why we don't go to them for help. But the renewed mind of a mature and growing believer is capable to help people in their battle with sin in ways that a secular psychologist never can. So the guy with a PhD in secular psychology or psychiatry, will be of far less help to people than you will be with a high school degree with training in biblical counseling so that you know how to use the sword of the Spirit. All right? You'll be far more effective in genuinely helping people than a guy with two PhDs. Because it's not a matter of intellect, it's a matter of heart. And your noetic effect of sin has been transformed by the Spirit of God. Okay, I have 9.59. You get one extra minute for break. We'll see you back at 10.15.